Well, again, open your Bibles up to Mark chapter 3. We are continuing on the book of Mark, and then the next couple weeks, I will actually do an Advent series, and then we'll go back to Mark. Mark chapter 3. I don't know if you've seen in the news uh, some controversy about a, an American who went to an island um, overseas and actually uh, to an isolated tribe and was killed. It's been a lot of negativity online about it. And I, what I want to do this morning is actually um, introduce my message by kind of addressing this topic and this idea right there. And you might not have a clue what I'm talking about, but if you go online, especially social media, you can find out about some people's opinions on this. And I thought it'd be good to start off by making a couple comments uh, in regard to this. It's a kind of a social issue that's come up recently in the media. And uh, I don't really know this gentleman. I don't know much about him. Um, I do know this. His heart was to see these people come to Christ. And we can debate methods and, and all those kind of things. But uh, it's clear what this man wanted to do was see these people come to Christ, which is the heart of the gospel, right? I think second, um, related to this, is that a lot of people are you know, kind of shocked by it and some people are upset by it. But this is not a new concept in Christianity, going to places where the gospel is not. Um, some people are you know, acting like, what, you know, what is happening here? What, is, what would someone do something like this? Well, actually, that was the command that Christ gave to us, uh, right, to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And in biblical missions means that we go to places with the gospel and we present the scriptures to them and, and, and we want to do it in the context of their culture and with their language. And there are some uh, maybe missions that have the wrong methods and, and modes and maybe even some nefarious goals. Maybe uh, there was a time when uh, some nations, some countries tried to conquer and they used religion to do it. So their missionaries were more of, of colonial um, conquerors, right? And they forced Christianity on people. That is not biblical missions, right? That's not the way of Jesus. And that has actually done a lot of harm to the, the name of Christ. Um, in fact, even some of the, you read about some of the missionaries that were in this area in California, some of the Catholic um, Spanish missionaries. That was kind of the idea. It was a mixture of a colonialism with, with Christianity. That, that is not what a missionary should do. He should not try to change uh, the culture that he's going to to be like his culture uh, or even change their language or things like that. You actually are going within the context of their culture and presenting the gospel. And actually, interesting missionaries, if they have the, the biblical uh, motive and method, which is taking the gospel within their context, many of them become anthropologists, right? Linguists. They, uh, they become historians and translators and doctors, sometimes they're all in one, right? And when they go to those kind of places, and, and historically, many evangelical missionaries were and are all that in one. And, and, and when they go to a, a place, a context like that, many times those, those individuals' lives there are improved, right? So instead of hurting the people, it actually improves their lives, and one example I want to bring up this morning is a gentleman named Don Richardson. You might have heard of him. There's actually a book about him out there. You know him? He's spoken here. Has he really? Oh, this is a great example then. I did not know that. How long ago was that? Okay, decades. Well, <laughs> so some of you might not remember. In 1962, Don and his wife Carol went with their children to Papua New Guinea, Indonesia. And they went to a place where there was a number of tribes who were headhunters and, and cannibals. That's a great place to take your kids, huh? Right? But they went there to give the gospel to them. And he learned their language, which is very difficult. There's actually, in their language, there's 19, 19 tenses for each verb. So that's pretty crazy. But he was able to learn their language and um, translate, help translate the New Testament in their language. When they were living with these individuals, though, they were trying to give them the gospel, and it was, it was difficult. It wasn't working. And one of the you know, interesting things about their culture was very violent. You know, they were cannibals. So, so one of the uh, things they did was they would try to, you know, to, to be at war with their neighboring tribes. They would befriend people and act like they were their friends. 
and, uh, and they would kind of invite them in their house, and then eventually they'd kill them and eat them. It's like, yeah, that's pretty bad, right? And so it was hard to give the gospel. In fact, one of the things that was difficult for them is when they gave the gospel to these people, that they actually celebrated Judas. Because Judas was the one who befriended Jesus, right? And he betrayed him. So they actually saw Judas as the hero of the story. They called this the fattening of the pig for slaughter. It was kind of their little idea there. And so they had a really hard time. Like, how are we going to get the gospel to these people? And eventually the, the gospel broke through. And so I want to show you just a, a short clip, a little video of what God did through them in the gospel there. It was 50 years ago when my mother and my father began an unforgettable journey. I was just seven months old when they moved deep into the jungles of Papua. We made our home among a small tribal group known as the Sawi. My dad learned the language. My mom treated the sick, all with the purpose of telling them about Jesus. But the people did not respond. The Sawi were headhunters. They were cannibals. They lived in a constant state of war. As time passed, we began to lose hope that the gospel would take root. My parents were faced with a decision. Finally, Dad explained to the Sawi that if they kept on fighting, we could no longer stay. But the Sawi were desperate to keep us around. So they finally agreed to make peace with each other. In order for that to happen, each Sawi village gave an infant, a baby boy, to their enemies. And this child became known as the Peace Child. It was through this unexpected exchange, buried deep in their culture, that my parents were given a perfect opportunity to share the gospel with the Sawi, to explain to them that God sent his very own Peace Child, Jesus, to make peace with us. It's been 50 years since that day, and we're very anxious to see how the Sawi are doing. The younger generation is really thriving. There are lots of challenges, but they're, they're aggressive. They're, um, they're taking places of leadership. I'm impressed with the desire to progress, the desire to make an impact. that these tribes that used to be mortal enemies are so close to each other now. They, they see themselves almost as one. The old tribal barriers and divisions that I sensed and knew as a child have long since broken down. And they really feel themselves as being one people. Part of that is because they, they share a sense of significance and identity by virtue of their story that has been told. Amazing, isn't it? I was thinking about after they became Christians, what kind of stories they told, you know? They're sitting there worshiping in church and it was like, you know, I ate your grandpa, you know, I mean, think about that was like, that's the reality for them. But what broke through? I mean, what, how did it, how did it become where five tribes were really terrorizing each other, killing each other, eating each other. And now they're at peace, right? They're a family. They love each other. It's the power of the gospel. The factor was Christ. He changed their hearts and he changed their mission. And today, today, what I want to do is we're going through the distinctives of the call of Christ upon his disciples. And when I look, I want to look at today, the disciples were called to seek unity amongst diversity. So we went through a couple of these last week, and we talked about how the disciples were called to learn from Christ. They were called to use their natural gifts and resources to serve Christ to be immersed in the work of Christ. And last week we talked about how they were called to follow their assignment, which was to be with Jesus and then to do, to go preach the gospel. Today we're going to look at the disciples were called to seek unity amongst diversity. 
We're going to read the scripture here in Luke chapter 3. Would you stand with me as I read Luke chapter 3, verses uh, 13 through 19. Mark 3, 13. And he, Jesus, went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they said to him, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve whom he also named apostles so they might be with him and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the 12 Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave, gave the name Bonerges, that is the sons of thunder, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon, the zealot, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, I I pray that you will take your word this morning. And I pray that it will be powerfully preached, not in word only, but also in power of the Holy Spirit. And unify our church around Jesus Christ. And empower us to go out with the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The disciples were called to seek, di- to seek uh, unity amongst diversity. I mean, as you look at these disciples, they are a very diverse group of men, but Christ called them together as his apostles and united them. In verse 16, he says he appointed 12, and the first one was Simon, to whom he gave the, na- gave the name Peter. Simon was Peter's birth name, and Peter was the name that Jesus gave to him. In John chapter 1, verse 42, the Bible says Andrew brought Peter to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon. That was what the name you were given when you were born. You are Simon, son of Jonah. You will be called Cephas, which is, when translated, is Peter. And Peter is the Greek word for rock. So Peter means rock. And the nickname Jesus gave him was given to him to help him to understand who God wanted to change him to be. Peter is the name Rock. Simon was the, the name that, that Jesus and the gospel writers would use a lot of times to refer back to the fleshly human side of Peter. In fact, if you were to study this, we don't have time for this today, but if you were to study this, you would see that when Jesus wants to refer back to the fleshly human passions of Peter, he uses the name Simon. And when he wants him to look to what God wants him to be, he uses the name Peter. What was Simon like in his own human fleshly passions? Well, Simon was a big mouthed, opinionated, self-confident, impatient man, right? Now, as we go through these disciples, you'll start thinking of people, maybe even yourself in these situations, right? Externally, Simon seemed great. He seemed powerful. He seemed dependable. But internally and realistically, Simon was weak. He was fleshly. He was fearful. He was unfaithful. So Jesus gave him the name Rock or Peter, and his name represented who Christ wanted to make him. In fact, if you look in Luke chapter 22, I'll put it up on the screen here, Luke 22 Jesus, the night before he was to be killed, he said to him, to Simon, to Simon Peter, Simon, Simon, and think about it, it's like fleshly Simon, weak Simon, weak, weak Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And he says, and when you have turned back, I'm going to pray for you, strengthen your brothers. And so he's saying, I'm praying for you, Simon, you're weak, but I'm praying you'll be a rock. I'm praying you'll be Peter. And that's why he says in verse 34, Jesus answered, I tell you, rock, right? I'm going to pray that you'll go and strengthen your brothers. And and Peter had self-confidence, but God wanted him to have confidence in him. And so, so Christ prayed for him. By the way, his prayer was answered, right? The book of Acts, we see Peter stands up. And he has strength and confidence in God. And he stands firm on the word of God. And he preaches the gospel. In fact, so much so that Paul the apostle writes in Galatians chapter 2 verse 9. He says, James and Cephas, which is the Aramaic word 
for Peter or rock, and John are esteemed as pillars. So, so Peter became the rock, right? Christ changed him. And then, well, let me say some other things about Peter. Peter was also married. He was the only disciple that we know of that was married. He was probably the oldest disciple. So here we have Peter, the bold and brash and outspoken and sometimes foul-mouthed fisherman who became the faith-filled, humble Peter. Then we have Peter, and then we have James, and we have John. So verse 17, it says, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Bonerges, that is, sons of thunder. Remember, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, that James and John, their father was a prominent businessman who owned uh, a fishing industry there on the lake of the Sea of Galilee. And so he must have been a, a significant person. And therefore, you have to think these guys grew up in a home in which they, they were probably um, somewhat influential in the, the community. And maybe they thought of themselves as pretty important family. In fact, if you remember, John was able to access the high priest courtyard. Remember that? And he invited Peter to come in with him. And so John had some kind of access. Maybe his father, Zebedee, was a well-known person in Jerusalem. He was maybe a little bit well-to-do. And so, so this is kind of the, the, uh, the home in which he grew up, maybe a little entitled, right? In fact, his mom was kind of the mother bear. Right? If you remember this, actually, in Matthew chapter number 20, in verse 20, 21, the mother of, of, uh, this, of John and James comes to Jesus. And it says, and then mother... uh, Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons kneeling before him, that's before Jesus, and asked him for something. That's pretty bold to come on behalf of your sons and ask them, and especially what she asked for. And she said, and he said, what do you want? (laughs) Like, stop bothering me. You can kind of imagine these other disciples are kind of like, come on, these young guys, their mama's boy right there, right? Come on, mama bear, get away. And so Jesus says, what do you want? And she says to him, uh, say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your kingdom, right? There's a mother with an opinion. And can you imagine just how that dynamic worked out in the group of the disciples? So here you have some, some young guys with, with a mama that maybe hung around, was a little clingy at times. Maybe they had the energy and maybe even the immaturity of, of youth. And therefore, in verse 17, Jesus gives them the name. What is it, what's the nickname he gives them? Sons of thunder, sons of lightning. And so maybe these boys were passionate and at times loud and maybe a little bit out of control, like lightning, right? Like thunder. And John, actually, uh, the apostle John lived the longest of all the apostles. He was the only one that we know of that did not die a martyr's death. And James, actually, of the faithful apostles, because Judas, you know, died. Um, but of the faithful apostles, he lived the shortest. He died in 44 AD. So here we have old Peter and we have young James and John. And next we have Andrew and Andrew was the brother of Peter. He was the first disciple to follow Jesus. And so he actually brought Peter to Jesus. Throughout the gospels, we see uh, Andrew as more of the quiet one. He's in the background. We don't hear much from him. And so he seems to be the one that was the opposite of his brother, Peter. Right? You have that in your home if you have children. Like you have the one that's the loud one, and you have the one that's the quiet one. So he was the quiet one, maybe more relational, had more interpersonal relationship skills. And then you had Philip. Philip was also a fisherman. Philip, uh, his, his name is actually Greek, and we don't know his Jewish name. And some people believe this is probably because he grew up as a Hellenistic Jew. In fact, in John chapter 12, Philip is the one who presents the Greeks to Jesus, and they want to have a meeting, and so he's the one that arranges that. So it seems like he had some kind of Greek connection and background and was organizing and administrating, had kind of that personality. Then we have Bartholomew, who was also called Nathaniel. So he's in kind of contrast, where he's the devout Jew. And at first, he actually rejected Jesus because Jesus was from Nazareth, right? He had a little bit of a prejudice against Nazareth. In fact, if you remember this passage in John one forty six, Nathaniel says... To, to Philip, can anything good come out of Nazareth, right? You kind of hear the sneering kind of snooty comment that Nathaniel has, like, Jesus is from Nazareth. Like, I'm from Cana, <laughs> you know, I'm better than him. But then he hears, he talks to Christ and realizes actually he is the Lord, the son of God, the king of Israel, as he 
has claimed to be. Then we have Matthew. Matthew is the tax collector we met in Mark chapter 2. Remember, tax collectors were despised because they were in cohorts. cohorts. They were um, cooperate. There you go. They cooperated with the Roman Empire by imposing and collecting taxes. Now, where did where did Matthew collect his taxes at? You remember? Okay, it's by the sea. Yeah, where? Uh, yeah, I mean, probably by the Sea of Galilee. Like it was on the road to the Sea of Galilee, right? That he was that Christ called him. So you thought, think about this. So you have fishermen who are walking down to the Sea of Galilee, and they had to at some point pass this guy and get taxes collected from them, right? So you think about the conversations they had after they became followers of Christ, right? It's like, we hated you, <laughs> Matthew, you know, Matthew yeah, hated you too, right? But what happened? How in the world did you have a, a, a tax collector, trader, right? Jew, who now became friends with people he collected taxes from at one time. Christ and the gospel changed them. About Thomas, Thomas was the one we call what? Doubting Thomas, right? He's, when he's mentioned in the gospel, he's, gospels, he's presented as one that's more cynical, um, kind of negative. In fact, when Jesus uh, went to Bethany to heal Lazarus, it had been four days. And the disciples knew that if they went to Bethany, which is near Jerusalem, that the, Roman, or the um, Jewish officials were waiting there, and they wanted to kill Jesus. And so they were scared about that. And so what, is John, or what does Thomas say in John chapter 11, verse 16? He has kind of a sarcastic, cynical comment. And he says, oh, let's go with him that we may die with him too. You know, So what a negative, pessimistic attitude. But he was somewhat in loyalty to Jesus. Like, oh, we're going to follow him, even though he's going to take us to our death, right? Uh, also, after Jesus was resurrected, the disciples saw him, Jesus. and But Thomas did not. You remember that passage? Thomas doubts. And you can imagine this conversation that the disciples see him and then they say, tell Thomas, man, we saw Jesus. You know, Thomas, oh, come on. I don't know. Maybe his spirit. No, we actually saw him. Like we saw his, he has wounds still. We can see it, you know. And, and Thomas says, well, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. And then Jesus appears. And what happens? Mr. Negativity turns to worshiper, right? And he bows down before Jesus and worships him and says, my Lord and my God. And so there's Thomas. Then you have James, the son of Alphaeus. And his also, his other name was James the Less or James the Little. So maybe he was short. So isn't that great? You get to be called the short one of the apostles. And he had Thaddeus. Thaddeus uh, was probably nicknamed. Judas was his real name. Thaddeus means breast child or heart child, which would have maybe been given to him uh, to show that he was a person who was tenderhearted and loved and, and cared for people. So maybe he was the more compassionate one in the group. Then you had Simon the Zealot. Simon the Zealot was a part of a political group called Zealots. Zealots hated the Roman oppressors and anyone who supported them. And, and many of them were violent and would carry out acts of violence. And they'd have these little daggers they would go around and they would take care of people who cooperated with rome sometimes they were tax collectors they took care of sometimes they were roman soldiers so you can imagine this in the situation here on, on one hand you have a tax collector who was you know working for rome and you have another guy who terrorized people who did that right and they are now united in christ and walking together in christ then you have judas iscariot who betrayed him judas was the disciple who seemed the most trustworthy that's ironic, isn't it? Well, you say, well, how do you know that? Well, they gave him the money, right? He was the one that kept the money. I mean, in any organization or any group, the only person you give the money to to, to keep track of it is the person you trust the most and the wisest, right? And that was Judas for them. But the scriptures tell us that he secretly actually was stealing money, siphoning off for himself. He was a fake, right? Externally, he looked godly, but actually he was unclean. Right? In his heart, he was sinful. He was unforgiven. He truly did not come to Christ in repentance and faith. And that's why when Christ is, is, is washing the feet of his disciples, he says, well, all of you are clean except for one. And that was Judas. And in the end, Judas's true heart was revealed when he betrayed Jesus. So, so Jesus called together 12 very different men, right? Very different 
diverse men. Some were short. They got a nickname because of it. Some were a part of a terrorist group, right? And some were the ones who were terrorized. There was the intellectuals, maybe the more simple. You had the optimistic, free-spirited leader. You had the sarcastic, questioning cynic. You have the tender-hearted person and the rule-keeping administrator. You have the, the, the quiet one and you have the loud one. You have the old and you have the young. So you have, here you have these different, these different personalities in this. And, and you don't put a group like this together to do one of the greatest things in the wor- history of the world, and that is start the church, do you? Like, this is a recipe for disaster. Unless you add the one thing that can bring them all together, and what is that? That's Jesus, right? The one person, that's Jesus. And the common unifying factor with this group was Jesus Christ and his gospel. How did Jesus change these men so they could be unified as a group? Well, first of all, he changed their hearts. He changed their hearts. How did Christ bring unity? He changed their hearts. Eleven of these men believed the gospel. They repented. They turned from their way and their sinful life, and they trusted in Jesus Christ to be their redeemer. He changed a foul-mouthed prideful Simon into a humble, solid rock. He changed a greedy tax collector into a man who actually wrote a gospel to the Jews. So he was, he was hated by the Jews and then was changed to be a person who actually evangelized the Jews, like the book, the gospel of Matthew. Actually interesting. The gospel of Matthew has 99 old Testament references. That's more than the other three gospels combined. So here's a person who God changed in a dramatic way. He changed the passionate, immature son of thunder, John, into the evangelist who wrote a gospel, three epistles in the book of Revelation. So he forgave. He, he changed them. He, he, he changed their loves and their desires and their motives. And the disciples were not unified because they had common human interests. He changed who they were and united them with the gospel. And also he changed, he united them by changing their mission. I mean, think about these guys and what direction of life they were going. And now with Christ, they were going a different direction. Instead of advancing the Jewish cause against Rome, like Simon the Zealot, now he was advancing Christ's cause. Instead of pursuing wealth so he can retire well, like Matthew, he was pursuing riches in heaven. Instead of trying to keep his status, their status with the elites of Israel, like the sons of Zebedee, they were humbling themselves to be servants of Christ. So here was a a unified group that now had the mission to know Christ and to make him known. And in that society, as frankly, all societies are, people were divided into groups, right? into categories, into ethnic groups and social classes. You had Jews and Gentiles, and they hated each other. Then you had the despised Samaritans, and the Jews hated the Romans, and so you had people that were terrorizing each other because of it. The intellectuals stuck together, and they looked down on the, the commoners. Does that sound familiar? Right? That's how, that's how the world works. That's how it's worked for a long time. That's, that's what our world does. We are, we are pressured and we are programmed to think this way, to put everyone in a little category, in a little box, and define them by that, and that's how they have to live. And we must fight about those categories. We must be against each other. Those who are different than you, those who look different, act different, have a different background than you, then we have to come after those people, right? Because they fit in that category. That's the way of the world, The world programs us to look at the exterior and make judgments based upon a person's background or cultural history or their beauty, of course, as defined by the culture, their social class or their political affiliations. That's not the way of Christ. This is an interesting story I was reading um, on Thanksgiving Day, the day when people are coming together to celebrate what God has given them despite their differences. Right? The Indians and the pilgrims came together and they celebrated what God had given them despite their differences. A lot of families came together and they fought on Thanksgiving. Right? One example was a family in North Carolina, Cary, North Carolina. They sat down to have their Thanksgiving meal. And Jorge was the father. He's 51 years old. He had two sons. And they began to have a debate on should you stand for the national anthem or not? 
Yeah, that's a debate in America right now, isn't it? So they had that little debate at their table there, and they got, it got pretty heated. In fact, at one point, one of the sons stood up, and he threw something, threw a bag across the room. The other son was mad as well, and he went outside, and he started throwing lawn furniture. The dad went and got his gun, North Carolina. And he came back inside, and they were throwing things, and he got hit in the face. The dad did with a water bottle, and the gun went off and shot the sun in the lake. So should we stand or kneel for the national anthem? Like, let's divide and fight about it, huh? And, that, and I'm, in, I'm giving that as an illustration because that's how the world works, right? Let's divide everyone up and let's get these different categories and, and then let's all have a war about it. But this, this is not the way of the Lord Jesus. Christ brings unity. He brings unity. And how does he do it? Well, he changes our hearts. He changes our hearts. And he changes our mission. And when, you, when your heart is changed by Jesus, you realize these earthly debates will go away, right? You realize there's something beyond this life that's way more important. It's eternity. The external facade of a person no longer matters to you, right? Ethnic backgrounds, prejudice, beauty, those are temporal, external things. But as a Christian, we know what matters is the heart, the soul of a person. It has a destiny. It's going somewhere. And as a Christian, we can be unified because Christ is within us. And we're united in Christ, and he's changing us. And also, we can be unified based upon our mission. We are, no matter our background, no matter who we are, if we're in Christ, we are called to serve each other and to serve our Lord and Savior Jesus. In fact, Colossians chapter 3 is a great passage that talks about this. Colossians 3, 9, he says, you've put off the old self with its practices. Like, gone is the way of thinking that judges people based upon earthly values that looks at life from a temporal perspective. No, you've been changed by Jesus. In verse 10, he says, and you've put on the new self. You put on Jesus Christ. Christ has changed you, and he is changing you, which is being renewed. So it's daily in knowledge after the knowledge or after the image of its creator. Who is its creator? Jesus, right? And notice it's in knowledge. It's, it's, it's an internal thing. It's happening in our heart. Christ is changing us, how we think, what we love, what we desire, what our view is of others, which means we don't establish a person's worth based upon external qualities or backgrounds or social status. We see every person as someone that's just like us, a person who needs Jesus Christ. And so therefore, he says in verse 11, he says, here, here in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all, and he's in all. And when you look past exterior and see a person like Christ does, prejudice and bias and indifference are erased. Why? Because you see past the exterior, and you see the person who needs Jesus Christ. And if they're, if they're a believer, you see Christ in them, the hope of glory. If they're not a believer, you see a person who needs Christ. There was a, a man named Johnny Lee Clary from Oklahoma. He grew up going to church, and he was a white supremacist. In 1979, he decided to go on to a radio show with another pastor, a black pastor named Wade Watts. So they, they walked into 1979, they walked into this radio station, and and. Johnny Lee Clary is dressed in his Ku Klux Klan outfit, all white outfit. This black pastor, Wade Watts, walks in, big smile on his face and his suit and tie. John Clary grew up, like I said, in a Christian home. He decided to join a Christian group, and I'm putting quotations there because it wasn't Christian. He joined a man named David Duke, if you've heard of that man, which, he, which their form of Christianity was was filled with vile hate, using the name of Jesus to do the work of Satan. So John Clary, he, came, he went all the way up to being the grand wizard of the KKK. In fact, at one time, he even tried to burn down Pastor Wade Watts' church. So there they are in this room, and they're talking about racism. 
And this, this Johnny Lee Clary called this pastor every name you can think of in the book. Well, whatever book it was in the world. And it was this vile. This pastor would respond back with a smile and say, I love you and I'm praying for you. And as the men left, Pastor Watts brought in his baby girl and asked Clary, he says, look at this baby girl. How can you hate her? And as John Clary, Johnny Clary walked out of there, that thought and that picture began to eat away at him. And he started feeling guilty. Didn't really completely understand why, but he knew his life was falling apart. He was depressed. He was suicidal. And at one point, someone told him, you don't have the correct form of Christianity. You need to go to the Bible and study the Bible. So he one day was so down and so depressed that he decided, I guess I should just probably do that. If I say I'm a Christian, I probably should read the Bible. And so he started reading the Bible and actually found out what he believed about Jesus and about Christianity wasn't true. And he actually got saved and became a believer in Jesus Christ, a true believer in Christ, and realized he had some twisted thinking. And he repented and believed, and Christ began to change him. So much so that a couple years later, he contacted this Pastor Watts so he could call and apologize to him and seek reconciliation. This Pastor Watts said, I've been praying for you all these years. And he invited him to come and speak at his church to give his testimony. And so this Johnny Lee Clary got up and gave his testimony, talked about how he was a Ku Klux Klan member and how racist he was, and then talked about how Christ saved him. And afterwards, he went and sat down, and the pastor came up, Pastor Watts, and gave an invitation. And down the aisle walked a 15-year-old girl who was crying. And she met her father and said, I want to know the same Jesus that man knows. Pastor Watts turned to John, Johnny Lee Clary. And you said, you see this young girl? This is my girl. And 15 years ago, 15 years ago, I held her in my arms. And I said, how could you hate this girl? And he said, who would have ever believed that God could take an old Ku Klux Klan member have me pray for him for all these years, and he would be the one to come and give the gospel to my daughter. Isn't that amazing? Like, how can that happen in any other world except for a world where Jesus Christ is the ruler of a person's heart? The amazing work of Christ is to take the diversity that causes division in the world and to bring diverse people together in unity around Christ. And there's a picture of those two men right there. And even though, even though as Christians, we've been called out of that way of thinking, sometimes as churches, we can, we can fall back into it. Sometimes as Christians, we can fall into it. Sometimes we can think as a church, it's like, well, well we are this kind of church, right? This, this is the type of church we are. Like only these kind of people should go to this church. Or this is the, especially when I was in the South, it was like, this is the white church. This is the black church. This is like, the, that's not the way of Christ. In fact, there's one church I heard of that was the biker church. It was like, what? Okay. Um, and it's kind of, sometimes churches are seen like Baskin Robbins, like the 31 flavors, right? Just pick your flavor of church. And I think it's great to reach different groups. Okay. It's especially if someone doesn't speak your language, like totally go after that, that group and that culture and, and give them the gospel and think of creator ways that we can bring them together to give them the gospel. So I think that that should be great, but our goal should not be to create an exclusive designer church, right? We're the traditional church. Well, we're the, we're the more contemporary cool church in town, right? But actually, 1 Corinthians, would you turn me with, to 1 Corinthians kind of as we close here? Turn to 1 Corinthians. I think 1 Corinthians gives us some great direction on this because sometimes we like to unite as Christians and as churches around human commonalities and define really who we are as a church by saying, oh, we're this kind of church. When actually we should be a church that is centered on Christ and unified around the gospel. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, Paul wrote, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree or be unified, that there be no divisions among you, 
but that you be united in the same mind. There's unity in the same judgment. So we as a church must seek unity. Well, well, how do we find that unity? Well, it's not in common backgrounds and leaders. Look at verse 11. For it has been reported to be my Chloe's people. Who is Chloe? I don't know that she was tattling a little bit here, but probably good because they were quarreling, right? They're quarreling about differences with brothers in the church and sisters in the church. Verse 12, what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Cephas, I follow Christ. Like, let's divide the church up into who you follow, right? So if you like John MacArthur, you can sit on this side of the room, right? And if you like uh, Francis Chan, you can sit over here. And those who are for Roger can sit in the middle. No, <laughs> But no, that's, that's not how we design the church. It's not what we unify around. Our unity for Christians and for the church should, not, should be found in Christ. And great, there's, there's great resources that we should use. And that's great to use those resources. But that's not where we find our unity. Verse 23, but we preach Christ. We preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and, Jews and Greeks, notice the ethnic divisions are unified in Christ. Like, okay, so that's how people divide up. But in Christ, we're unified. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, it's Christ who unifies us. For verse, verse 26, for consider your calling. That's what we're talking about, our calling. Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Like, right, that's how the world divides everyone up. It's like, oh, you're really important. You're super smart. Oh, you're really important. You're of noble birth. Oh, you're, that's not the way of Christ. But verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to, to shame the strong. God doesn't care about your human temporal divisions. Verse 28, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So where does unity come from? Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Christ in us unifies us. And so we should seek unity amongst diversity and may we as a church here seek to have a little bit of heaven on earth what does that look like revelation 7 9 a great multitude that no one could number will stand before him from every nation from all tribes and people and languages standing before the throne before the lamb clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and they're singing out and they're worshiping our lord and savior jesus christ so heaven will not look like America, right? It's not going to look like the American church, right? And so we need to seek to have and encourage diversity of backgrounds and of people. So what does that mean for us? I think there's a couple of things. I kind of want to use this time to apply some of this. I think we need to focus and, and encourage the church to, to reach people from all different nationalities and backgrounds whether they're around the world or whether they're in our community here, right? I mean, sometimes you see like different people moving in and maybe down the road, you're like, oh no, that family's moving in here. They're not like us. Actually, maybe it should be like, oh yes, I get to give the gospel to someone that's completely different from me, right? When we moved uh, temporarily to a house in Taylor, South Carolina uh, this past year, there was a Muslim family right across the road from us. So they had a boy and a girl there and we lived in a little cul-de-sac, and there were um, some children that lived in that cul-de-sac, and they went to a Christian church. So our kids were out there playing with them, and they noticed those two kids down there. And so my children went over to play with uh, the children, the, the, the Christian kids on this side, and, and they said, who are those kids? And they said, oh, they're Muslims. They're really bad people. They try to hurt people. And so my kids heard this, and they came home, and they said, that's not true, is it? I said, no. I said, do they believe like us? Huh? So what should we do? Let's love them. Let's be their friend. My kids said, let's do that. And they began to go over there and play with those kids, the Muslim kids. You know why? Because that's the way of Christ, to show love, right? And begin to befriend them. I remember one of the sweetest things that happened before we left is Isaac took one of our forgiven tracks, one of the ones you can find back there we give to the children. And he says, I want him to know this. I want him to know this. I'm going to give this to him before we leave again. And so... But let's, let's reach out to people who are different from us and see the, the true need they have. And that is a heart that needs Christ. 
I think we should also never allow our minds or our mouth to make demeaning judgments about the exterior differences of those around us. Ethnic or cultural differences do not make you superior, right? Wake up America, right? We need to realize that we are equal as human beings and the gospel equalizes equalizes us. And your social status or how you dress or what kind of job you have does not should not be a determining factor in who you love, right? And we must resist the temptation to accept people who are like us and or just be with people who are like us. You know, there's one uh, time I heard, uh, I was talking to someone in South Carolina and they said, well, there's a church for that kind of person. Whoa, I was like, yeah, our church. <laughs> like, like, let's get them to come to our church. And so let's not have that kind of attitude, right? And Lighthouse should be biased toward being multi-ethnic and transgenerational. So how do we do this? How do we have unity amongst diversity? Well, I think we need to focus on our own hearts, right? We need to have our hearts changed by Christ. And if you're in here and you're without Christ and you're like, wow, this sounds pretty radical, right? It is radical. Like when God changes your heart, there's amazing things that God can do through you. And when God changes our hearts as Christians, it's a radical thing that happens. Let me encourage us in here as a church to focus also on the hearts of, of people. Like try to, try to understand eternity and the reality of eternity and look beyond the temporal and the external and see a person who needs Jesus. So, so even with us in here as Christians, even as, as Lighthouse Church in here, like even us, us in here, like when you see someone, don't see a, a young person. Oh, that's an old person. Like I have nothing. I can't relate to them. They're old, right? Or your old person is like, that's a young person. I can't relate to them. Like don't see them externally. Be like, there's a person who loves Jesus, right? Are they in the church here? So they're claiming to love Jesus. I need to, I'm going to talk to them about Christ. Or, or, or don't look at someone and be like, well, there's a single. I'm married. We're different. No. Like those are external realities, right? Look at the internal heart. And don't associate with people just based upon a common background or your, your present life status. We are, as a church, we are one body here, right? And there's so many different parts, and that's great, and we should celebrate that. We should celebrate it. And also, we must unite with the mission to know God and to make him know, known. How do, we, how do we go forward in unity here as a church? One of the greatest ways to do that is to not just sit here, but actually live life with people, right? And even beyond that, to serve with people. There's nothing like standing next to someone that you have nothing in common with and do something for Jesus Christ, right? And that brings unity. I mean, one of the greatest ways I've seen this is when people go on mission trips, you know, and they've been in the church with someone for 20 years, you know, and they go on this mission trip and they have nothing in common with this person and they come back and they're best friends. And it's like, how did that happen? Because you live life with them. And then you did something for Jesus together. And so let's, let's look around this room and think, who's someone in here that I don't know? Maybe it's completely different from me. And how can I actually live life with them? How can I serve Christ with them? And I'm not going to go through this point. You might be nervous that I'm going to. But my last point here, the disciples were called to seek unity amongst diversity, but also to gather, to group, and to go. Now, what I decided to do is actually do an Advent series the next couple weeks. And then I'm going to take this last point and use this to help us understand what I think God has for us this next year in 2019. So I'm going to, in January, kind of park on this and talk about this for two or three weeks. But this last point here is the disciples were, were called to gather. So there's these larger group gatherings that Jesus would preach the gospel. He'd go to a synagogue. But then notice Jesus actually grouped them up. First, he grouped them in 12. And then from the 12, he actually further arranged them in three groups of four with a leader of each group. And then he further had closer disciples. He had a disciple whom he loved. In other words, he had a really close friendship with John. And, of course, Peter. He's always talking to Peter and helping build Peter up. And so you can see these little groups that he's involved in. And and then also they go together, right? So they gather. They group together. Then they go together. And I think that these are, these are different spiritual 
relational environments in which Jesus wants his disciples to live. And then you see in the, in the New Testament or in the, the book of Acts, and then the church has started, the same kind of thing is happening, right? They gather in the temple, then they go from house to house. They have these smaller groups, and then they go out with the gospel. So I think all of these relational environments are important for our, our spiritual growth. And so even as you're sitting in the room here, you got to think to yourself, okay, I'm in the gathering, right? What about the next two? What about the grouping together? What about going with the gospel? So as, as disciples of Christ, we're, we're called to gather together, to group, and then to go with the gospel. And as disciples, he also calls us to seek unity amongst diversity. And let me encourage you as I end today, I'm going to end with a, a time of silence and prayer. I want to encourage you to pray, to ask God, God, help me to see how can I take what I heard today from your word? That God, what needs a change in my life, in my heart? Like, how can I change? And how can I be unified together with this church, even amongst diversity. And it could be, frankly, that some of us in here need to repent, right? We need to repent of how we treat other people, maybe how we talk about other people or other groups of people. And it could be some of us, for the first time, need to repent and believe the gospel and come to Christ. And it could be there's maybe someone in here or maybe someone in your life and you kind of are at odds with that person. Something between you and that person, and you've maybe done some things that have created disunity, and you need to seek reconciliation. But let's center around the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's first have Christ change us, be unified as our hearts submit to the gospel, and then let's seek to go forward and be unified as we serve together. Father, we come to you as men and women and children who are broken people, who have many times a temporal view of our lives in this world and other people, who seek comfort by just having common interests with people and just wanting to associate with people that we feel comfortable with. And maybe even having a negative, demeaning view with people who are different from us. God, forgive us for that. Give us a heart that loves people because, God, you love people. Help us to see each person, no matter who they are, what they look like, where they're from, as a person for whom Christ died. As a person for whom Christ you love. Give us that heart as a church. Change us. We need that that gospel be applied to our hearts every day. God, each one of us is, is guilty of that many times, of having that stereotypical prejudice mindset towards people. So God, give us the love of Christ in our hearts. and Make us as a church into a church that's unified around Jesus and his gospel. We want to be a shining light to this community. Not a shining light that's about us or about what makes us maybe we think special, but a shining light of the gospel of Jesus Christ, a shining light of the glory of Christ. So God, change us, make us into that. Bring glory to your name through this church, through the unity that you can bring. We pray this in Jesus' name.